welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Nathan, and I am super excited for you guys today. Today, we are going to air part two of our conversation that we had with Dr. Dan Wallace from Dallas Seminary on Bibliology, which is the doctrine of the Bible. Now, about a month ago, we released part one of that conversation, and as I was editing part two, I unfortunately came to realize that there were a lot of uh, glitches in the audio that, after quite a bit of effort, frankly, realized that it just wasn't salvageable. And that was super frustrating. So I reached back out to Dan, who lives here in the Metroplex, and was like, hey, dude, come on back down. Let's re-record this. It's going to be awesome. But his schedule is booked out through the end of the year, and we just couldn't make that happen. But he was also like, hey, dude, I just did a chapel service at Dallas Seminary on this same topic. And so I went and listened to that, and it's totally epic. So that is what we are going to re-air today on the Equipping Podcast, is Dan Wallace's chapel message called Christ at the Center, a bibliology grounded in Christology. Now, there's a couple of caveats to this. Number one, if you haven't listened to part one of our conversation with Dan, you need to go back and listen to that. That aired about a month ago. And then number two, Dan also did a part one of this message like eight years ago. (laughs) Um, And this little series he did is called Bumper Sticker Theology. So if you really want to get the most out of it, I would encourage you to go back to listen to Karen and I's first conversation with Dan about a month ago. And then also you can find that first message, part one of Bumper Sticker Theology on Dallas Seminary's Chapel Archive about eight years ago. (laughs) I think it was 2012 when that came out. So anyway, if you want to go back and listen to that stuff. Otherwise, the thing that I'm really excited about for you today is Dan is going to be talking about an often overlooked but really critical distinction in Christian theology. And in my opinion, which, you know, take it or leave it, But in my opinion, this is one of the most critical distinctions that must be made in order to maintain a cohesive biblical theology. So buckle up and enjoy this episode. Well, it's good to see all the smiling faces today. Or I should say it's good to see half of the smiling faces because that's all I can see on each one of you. I'm going to take it by faith that you're actually smiling under that mask because we live by faith, not by sight. My wife is probably smirking at home. Eight years ago, eight years ago, I spoke in chapel, gave a message, bumper sticker theology, part one. I introduced the subject this way. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. That's the worst credo ever. This is bumper sticker theology. It's pop Christianity. It's not the belief of a true disciple. Now, I'm not sure if the chaplain liked the message that much because I had to wait until now to give part two. (laughs) When I gave part one, most of you were still in junior high school. But you can consider this message, Bumper Sticker Theology Part 2, or as I like to call it, Christ at the Center, a bibliology grounded in Christology. What's wrong with that pop credo? Well, first, let's take 
The Bible says it. But what does the Bible really say? And how do we know? That falls under the scope of textual criticism, which is what I addressed in part one. You can go back and look at that video from eight years ago to see what I said. But don't do it now in chapel on your iPhone. That would be really rude. Secondly, what about I believe it? Well, what do I believe? This presupposes that there is nothing to interpret. The Bible says it. I believe it. That the meaning of the whole Bible and all of its parts is quite transparent. Now, if that were the case, you all could save just a ton of money by not going to seminary. Just get out and preach the word because it's clear as soon as you say it, you understand it. And third, that settles it. Is my faith in the Bible simply because of the Bible? Isn't that just a bit circular? Why should I believe the Bible? Is our faith totally objective? Is Christianity only a logical and empirical reality? Is there not a mystical element to it as well? It's this third issue, the authority of the Bible and the place of the Bible in our lives that I want to explore with you this morning. How do you even know the Bible is true? Well, some may argue that we can't even know what Jesus said unless we first believe that the Bible is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. But that approach is circular. Making a pronouncement that scripture is without error does not guarantee the truth of such an utterance. If I said the moon is made of green cheese, that doesn't make it so. At most, what a pronouncement about the Bible can do is give a person assurance, but that's not the same thing as knowledge. And if the method for arriving at such assurance is wrong-headed, then even the assurance needs to be called into question. Now, the Bible's own testimony is important. If the scriptures did not claim to be the word of God, then we should not believe that they are the word of God. But there are plenty of passages that speak of the Bible as God's word, as the non-negotiable, authoritative document that should guide our lives and our faith. The Bible's own testimony, in other words, is necessary. The Bible's own testimony is necessary, but it's not adequate. We don't have the deepest assurance about the Bible simply by convincing ourselves that it must be true. We should not regard the Bible as our final authority for faith and practice just because it claims to have such authority. In fact, I would argue that such a presuppositional approach often caves in on itself. So I want to offer you this morning a firmer foundation for our faith. Not only a firmer foundation, but a better focus. In my library at home, and if you've been to my home, you know it's a library. Uh, it's not a study. Two stories, way too many books, my wife would say. And my boys know that they will be cut out of the will if they call, call it an office. So it's a library. You, have, you just have to get along with it. And part of the reason I have a library at home 
is because for years, when I checked books out from Dallas Seminary, I forgot that I had checked the book out from Dallas Seminary. And I can't read without marking up the lines with a ruler and a pen. And so I bought a fair share of books that previously were owned by the seminary library. And I decided, I'm just going to buy these myself. So I have this library at home. And in it is a book called Christ and the Bible by Professor John Winham, a great evangelical scholar who was professor of New Testament at Bristol University and later he became the warden of Latimer House in Oxford. The first edition of Christ and the Bible came out in 1972. The third edition, 1994. That third edition was sitting on my shelf for years, unopened. I only started reading it earlier this year. In the introduction, Wyndham says, Christians who have been unsure about the status of the Bible have been caught in a vicious circle. Any satisfactory doctrine of the Bible must be based on the teaching of the Bible. But the teaching of the Bible is itself suspect. The way out of this dilemma is to recognize that belief in the Bible comes from faith in Christ and not vice versa. Let me repeat that. Belief in the Bible comes from faith in Christ and not vice versa. The normal or the typical Christian experience is something like this. We first come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then... As we grow in faith, we have all sorts of questions about the Bible that need answers. But then come the siren songs that cast doubt on the Bible's authority and truth. The problem is we begin to doubt our own faith if we find potential errors in Scripture. Unvetted, self-proclaimed authorities on the Internet have claimed that the Bible is full of mistakes. They confuse us and our faith in the scriptures, and therefore our submission to its instructions start to waver. As many as two-thirds of all kids from a Christian home abandon the faith after four years in college. Two-thirds, even at Christian colleges. Those are startling. They're shocking numbers. There's a better way to solve this problem. We have had a conversion experience. You've had a conversion experience if you're sitting in this auditorium. The Holy Spirit opened our eyes to behold the majesty of the Son of God, to see the suffering that he willingly endured and his resurrection to new life that we might be saved. This experience is not sub-logical. It is supra-logical. We can have a peace that surpasses all understanding, and this peace from God will guard our, heart, our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.7. Now, do we have any analogies to this? Yeah, we do. It's like falling in love. When I was giving part one of Bumper Sticker Theology, most of you were probably at that time asking your mother the question, 
how will I know when I'm in love? Now, I don't know your mothers, but let's just assume that we all have the same mother. What does she say when you ask, how do I know if I'm in love? You just know. I guess I met all of your mothers. <laughs> this is the last vestige of a pre-enlightenment epistemology. And yet it's the decisive answer to the second most important decision we will ever make. So let me extend this analogy. We fall in love with Jesus Christ before we know very much about the Bible. Why should I believe the Bible? I'm going to offer three reasons. First of all, because I have had an existential experience with the risen one himself. The Holy Spirit is constantly reminding us of this reality. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are God's children. The Spirit himself bears witness to God the Father and his paternal claims on my life. The Spirit himself bears witness to the resurrection of God's Son, my Savior. The Spirit himself super in intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. That's not logical, but it's supra-logical. Do we dismiss all of this simply because it does not fit neatly into the scientific method and the idea that the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it? Secondly, because as a Christian, I have come to believe at least the basics of the gospel message. I don't need to believe that the Bible is true in every detail to be saved. Now, that might be shocking to some of you. I don't need to believe that the Bible is true in every detail to be saved. So let me illustrate this. Several years ago, there was a young woman who came to visit our church. She came from Chicago. She was born in Jordan and was supposed to go back to Jordan to marry a man that she knew as a child who was really a jerk. And, uh, you know, the arranged marriage of Muslim uh, women. She escaped from Chicago without her family realizing it, drove down to Dallas with just her few earthly belongings and started a new life. Well, she wanted to make some friends. Well, she's a Muslim. Are you going to go out to bars where people are drinking? No, she wouldn't do that. So what did she do? This is the buckle of the Bible Belt. She went to church. And so she goes to this church, our church, for a few weeks. And then after one Sunday, she comes up to the pastor and says, you have to tell me why I should believe in Jesus. She's a very, very smart young lady. And she started listing all sorts of problems with uh, belief in, in uh, the gospel and in the Lord Jesus. Now, the pastor had a lot of savvy and was also, well, let's ju we'll just leave it at that. So he said, you're in luck. We have a professor in our congregation who teaches at Dallas Theological Seminary. He'll answer your questions. Thanks a lot, Pete. <laughs> so I met with this young lady. Rukaya is her name. She goes by Rocky. We met at Starbucks one day. She comes and she produces six pages 
of single-spaced, handwritten notes, each line a discrepancy she found in the Gospels. I wish that Christians read the Bible as deeply as this young Muslim lady did. And she said, unless you can answer every one of these discrepancies, I will not believe in Jesus. I looked at the list, stacked it up. I said, this is really impressive. And I put it to the side and said, I don't need to do that. Why not? I said, well, you just demonstrated that the gospel writers could not have written by collusion. If there's all these discrepancies in the gospels, then what you need to think about is what they agree on. And she thought for a moment, she said, well, yeah, I guess so. And that's what certainly is true. What do they agree on, Rocky? Oh, Jesus was a prophet. Jesus cast out demons. Jesus healed people. He did miracles. And what about the biggie? They all agree that Jesus was raised bodily from the dead. Two weeks later, she put her faith in Christ. A few weeks after that, I had just the great privilege of baptizing her. And then I said to her, Rocky, I have designs for your life. You have an AA degree, you need to get your bachelor's. She got her bachelor's degree at Criswell College. And I said, Rocky, I have designs for your life. You need to go to Dallas Seminary and get a THM. She came to Dallas Seminary and got a THM. And after that, she began to have a ministry, which she is still doing to this day, to expatriate Muslim women in Oklahoma and around the country. Every single month, she's seen somebody come to faith in Christ. Now, let's go back to that time at Starbucks. What if I allowed inerrancy to be a roadblock for her coming to faith in Christ? We'd still be arguing about the discrepancies in the gospel. But she later, and this is really important to catch, came to trust the Bible because she first came to trust in Christ. Our faith in Christ is the foundation for our trust of Scripture. Third, the things that Jesus claimed about himself are either the most audacious and arrogant claims any human being has ever made, or they are claims from the theanthropic person, the God-man, the second member of the Trinity. What's really striking to me is that Matthew, Mark, and John are all Jewish authors. Of the gospel writers, only Luke is a Gentile. First century Judaism was unequivocally monotheistic. At least twice every day, the Jews would recite the Shema, which begins, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. At least twice a day, they would recite this. It starts out saying, the Lord is one. We have one God. Is it likely that these evangelists, these gospel writers, these first century monotheistic Yahweh-worshipping Jewish authors and followers of Jesus would make up the words of Jesus about himself? No way. But if Jesus said them, then why would they record them? If he had not risen from the dead, there would be no gospels, no epistles, no book of Acts, no apocalypse, 
there would be no New Testament and no good news. Only if he rose from the dead could the apostles write the New Testament books. So why should I believe the Bible? Well, it's not just what Jesus says about himself. It's also what he says about the scriptures that is significant. If Jesus Christ is who he claims to be, then the Bible is what he claims it is. Jesus often spoke of the Bible in terms that went beyond the reverence that the religious leaders of his day had for the text. The men who controlled the temple and its services, the Sadducees, apparently subtracted from the canon, holding only the Torah as an absolute authority. But by far the most influential group, the Pharisees, added their own oral traditions to the Bible, later encoded in A.D. 200 as the Mishnah. Adding to the word of God was roundly condemned by Jesus. In Matthew chapter 15, for example, we'll be in Matthew for the rest of the message, some places in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 15, we read of a confrontation between the Pharisees and Jesus. Then Pharisees and experts in the law came from Jerusalem to Jesus and said, why do your disciples disobey the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands, the ritual hand washing, not to clean their hands. And I have to explain that, especially during the time of COVID. You say, what? Jesus' disciples didn't wash their hands? I mean, this is changing how we think about everything. They didn't do the ritual hand washing when they ate. So Jesus answered them, and why do you disobey the commandment of God? Because of your tradition. Their traditions about scripture got in the way of scripture. For God said, honor your father and mother, and whoever insults his father or mother must be put to death. That's the meek and mild, gentle Jesus we all know about. But you say, if someone tells his father or mother, Whatever help you would have received from me is now given to God. He does not need to honor his father. That's what you say. You've nullified the word of God on account of your tradition. Hypocrites. Isaiah prophesied rightly about you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And they worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In many ways, evangelicals are the spiritual heirs of the Pharisees. We each have our own shibboleths by which we judge one another. But Jesus, unlike the Pharisees, both the ancient and the modern Pharisees, reserved absolute authority to the word of God. He had a high view of the text, the whole text, and nothing but the text. We would therefore be unwise to have a view that is different from his. We're on dangerous ground if we dare take a lower view of Scripture than Jesus did. So my starting point for a high view of the Bible is Christ himself. In short, my bibliology is grounded in Christology, not the other way around. Later on in Matthew's Gospel, we see yet another confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders. It seems like that's the theme that is played over and over again. In chapter 22, verses 23 through 29, we see a confrontation between Jesus and the Sadducees. 
The same day, Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and father the children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The second did the same, and the third down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. No wonder. That's a textual variant, late 14th century manuscript. <laughs> In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. Jesus answered them, you are deceived because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Now, there's just a few points I want to ponder for our purposes. First of all, he doesn't disagree with the Sadducees about the Bible's authority. Secondly, he rebukes the Sadducees for not studying the Bible enough. You don't know the scriptures. Nowhere does our Lord endorse laziness when it comes to the word, especially for religious leaders. He also rebukes them for reading the Bible without seeing God's fingerprints all over it, for reading it in a naturalistic way. You don't know the power of God. This exchange between our Lord and the Sadducees reminds me of a message that was delivered 109 years ago by the great theologian of Princeton Seminary, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. It was titled, The Religious Life of Theological Students. At the beginning of his sermon, he declares the following. A minister must be learned on pain of being utterly incompetent for his work. But before and above being learned, a minister must be godly. Nothing could be more fatal, however, than to set these two things over against one another. Recruiting officers do not dispute whether it is better for soldiers to have a right leg or a left leg. Soldiers should have both legs. And Warfield goes on. Sometimes we hear it said that 10 minutes on your knees will give you a truer, deeper, more operative knowledge of God than 10 hours over your books. What is the appropriate response? Than 10 hours over your books on your knees? Why should you turn from God when you turn to your books or feel that you must turn from your books in order to turn to God? If learning and devotion are as antagonistic as that, then the intellectual life is in itself accursed. End of quote from War Warfield, who is speaking to us today. In short, when we study the book, we must do so as an act of worship. The Bible may be our foundational document, but the Savior is its focus. The very next scene, Matthew 22, 34 through 40, we read the following. Now, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they, had, they assembled together. And one of them, an expert in religious law, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Jesus said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. 
love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. Again, we have some principles here for our purposes. First of all, Jesus agreed with the Pharisees that the Old Testament law had authority over their lives. But secondly, he prioritized the commandments. Although all of Scripture is equally inspired, it is not all equally important. But third, he showed the unity of the Old Testament. All of it is authoritative and, in fact, hangs on these two commandments. This implicitly argues for a divine author as the driving force behind Scripture. Now, there's other things we could learn from that passage, too, but I'll leave it at that. Even a casual reading of the Gospels will reveal that Jesus is not just another prophet, not just a holy man, not even just a miracle worker. I'm going to point out a few passages out of very, very many to consider. In the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus begins 50 of his utterances with the word amen. It's translated verily or truly or um, I, 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 say to, I solemnly swear to you, and I forgot how we do it when we expand it. Mike, are you here, Mike? Yeah, uh, what do we do with the single amen? What do we do with the double? Okay, so the single, we don't know, but I tell you this, I don't like the translation truly, truly. I don't like the Lord Jesus saying truly, truly. It sounds like something out of chitty, chitty, bang, bang, truly scrumptious, you know? I just envision him as a little different from that. I would prefer that you say verily than truly. But here's the thing. Jesus puts amen at the beginning of his own utterances. Who did that? Now, we don't read it that way. You read it in translation. You say, oh, this is not amen and it's not truly. But you get what I'm saying. Fifty times he starts his own statements with amen. In that day, the Jews ended their prayers. Or actually, they said amen at the end of someone else's prayer. It was a statement that says, I affirm this. I agree with this. This is, this is truth. Jesus starts his own statements with that. Who does that? Who has the kind of arrogance to do this? Now, John doesn't do this. In John's gospel, Jesus 25 times starts his statements with a double amen. All of this is an implicit affirmation of his own authority, even his deity. He was so radically different from the people of his day, the religious leaders of the day. There's no way we could see him as other than claiming to be God in the flesh. He is the final permanent authority over all of existence. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Matthew 28, 19. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away, Matthew 24, 35. He uses outrageous metaphors to describe himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Who says that? And that's just for starters. He claimed to be greater than Solomon, greater than the temple, the Lord of the Sabbath, he forgave a paralytic sins, a man who had never sinned against Jesus personally. The religious leaders who were there got it right. No one can forgive sins but God. Jesus would agree with them. He implicitly claimed to be God in the flesh. The one who has seen me has seen the Father. 
I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. Frankly, before Abraham was, I am is terrible grammar and great theology. And he accepted worship from Thomas when that apostle who had no filter on his mouth blurted out, my Lord and my God. He didn't have a clue what he was saying. Truer words were never spoken, though. So why do I believe the Bible? At bottom, my bibliology is ultimately grounded in my Christology. That is, my trust in the Bible is due to my faith in Christ. Our final authority is, in fact, Jesus Christ himself. And why do I study the Bible? If you treat Scripture as though it were a mere textbook, you will shrivel up in this place. Too many DTS alumni have said that they feel farther away from the Lord at the end of their studies than at the beginning. That's just shocking. Why is that? Four years of study of the sacred text and you're spiritually dry? How can that be? If you don't view your studies as an act of worship, you will be put on the shelf before your ministry ever starts. You will be useless to the king before you even get out of the gates. Now, this is going to be off theologically as I bring this to a conclusion. If Jesus were to walk into one of our classrooms today, you know, obviously, that's not going to fit our doctrinal statement, and it's also not what would happen. But if he walked into our classroom, do you think we'd walk up to him and give him a big fist bump, or like this, I guess, or elbow bump, and say, hey, Jesus, it's great to connect a face to a name. Is that what we're going to do? No, we're sitting there. We're going to put aside our Nestle text, our Biblia Hebraica. We're going to throw our crowns down. We're going to get rid of everything in his presence. And he alone will be our focus. In the end, the incarnate word supersedes the inspired word. Let's never forget that. Your studies must be an act of worship. The center of all theology, the core of the Christian faith, is Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection are the center of time. Everything before Good Friday leads up to it. Everything after Easter Sunday is shaped by it. If Christ were not God in the flesh, he would not have been raised from the dead. And if he had not risen from the dead, then none of us would have any hope whatsoever. Our theology, our studies, our lives must grow out from Christ must be based on Christ, must focus on Christ, and must magnify Christ. Everything else is wood, hay, and stubble. Everything else. Amen, brother. As Dan Wallace, Christ at the Center a bibliology grounded in Christology. I hope you enjoyed listening to that message he gave at Dallas Seminary a few months ago. And thanks for listening to the Equipping Podcast. We definitely appreciate you sharing this resource with your family and friends and whoever, really. And if you think it's worth getting the word out on this, then we would encourage you to go onto your podcast platform and leave us a rating. 
And uh, for sure, leave us a comment. Those things help make us more discoverable on the internet webs. So, hey, we're grateful for you guys. We hope this continues to be a helpful resource for you. And we'll see you next time. Peace.